0: My hope
1: is in the Lord.
0: Hi, I'm John Heminghouse. Let me just take a moment to wish each of you a wonderful Memorial Day weekend and to thank you for making this broadcast part of your Sunday. Memorial Day is a time when we should give thanks to God for our freedom and to our brave servicemen and women who have given the ultimate sacrifice to help secure those liberties we enjoy. Now here's Pastor Jones with the next message in our series on the life of Christ. Well, good morning.
1: This is Pastor Lane Jones from Calkins Baptist Church speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. And we've been following Jesus around throughout his earthly ministry for a number of months now. We've come to the time of his passion, and specifically today we're talking about the humiliation of Christ, what he endured between his condemnation to die and actually being nailed to the cross. And so... If you're at all like me, I hate to be humiliated. You can banter with people, but when the humor or the conversation crosses the line from good natured teasing to humiliation, I believe almost all of us get angry at that point. Embarrassment is a powerful tool to change people's behavior, even to the point you will choose to do something that you know is foolish or even wrong, rather than be humiliated for standing for what you know to be right. A few years ago, psychologist Ruth W. Berenda carried out an interesting experiment with teenagers designed to show how a person handled group pressure. The plan was simple. They brought... Groups of 10 adolescents into a room for a test. Subsequently, each group of 10 was instructed to raise their hands when the teacher pointed to the longest line on three separate charts. What one person in the group did not know was that the nine others in the room had been instructed ahead of time to vote for the second longest line. Regardless of the instructions they heard, once they were all together in the group, the nine were not to vote for the longest line, but rather vote for the next to longest line. The experiment began with the nine teenagers voting for the wrong line. Now, the stooge would typically glance around, frown in confusion, and then slip his hand up with the group. The instructions were repeated and the next card was raised. Time after time, the self-conscious person who was not in on it would sit there saying a short line is longer than a long line simply because he lacked the courage to challenge the group. This remarkable conformity occurred in about 75% of the cases and was true of small children and high school students as well. Brenda concluded... And I quote now, some people had rather be president than write. Peer pressure really can have an impact on what we say. But have you ever done something for which you have come to be ashamed? Kind of interesting. I read a few examples of this. Uh, This one, while she was enjoying a transatlantic ocean trip, Billy Burke, the famous actress, noticed that a gentleman at the next table was suffering from a bad cold. Are you uncomfortable? She asked sympathetically. The man nodded. I'll tell you just what to do for it, she offered. Go back to your stateroom and drink lots of orange juice. Take two aspirins, cover yourself with all the blankets you can find, and sweat the cold out. I know just what I'm talking about. I'm Billy Burke from Hollywood. The man smiled warmly and introduced himself in return. Thanks, he said. I'm Dr. Mayo from the Mayo Clinic. Uh, Here's another example of embarrassment. This guy's uh, writing his name is Gene Solomon. He says, my sister Becky prepared a pasta dish uh, for a dinner party she was giving. In her haste, she forgot to refrigerate the spaghetti sauce and it sat on the counter all day. She worried about spoilage, but it was too late to cook up another batch. She called the local poison control center and voiced her concern. They advised Becky to boil the sauce again. That night, the phone rang during dinner and a guest volunteered to answer it. Her face dropped as she called out, it's the poison center. They want to know how the spaghetti sauce turned out. Uh, One more example, this one from the Reader's Digest. As we were leaving the lobby of a hotel, and this is writing this as Sandra Newman Bentley, in which we were staying, So they're walking out of the motel lobby. Our three-year-old son looked down at the doormat with the hotel logo on it. Hey, he exclaimed, that's on our towels at home. You can imagine the embarrassment there. Well, embarrassment's a real thing. But humiliation, I would say, is even worse. It involves not merely laughing at something or doing something foolish. Humiliation can be involved in in, in, uh, real attempts at intimidation and even physical, emotional abuse. And Christ was going to suffer both of that to save us. And So before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon His Word. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We ask for Your help as we look into Your Word today. And we rejoice at this opportunity. Bless those, Lord, who will take the time to listen. May you help them to gain much from this time as we consider the humiliation of the Savior, what he endured to save us. And so this is part of that. And we pray that you give us understanding May we be able to picture as best we can in our minds what was going on and to understand what it means for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm taking and harmonizing accounts from Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 15, the Gospel of Luke chapter 23, and the Gospel of John in both chapters 18 and 19. And when you put those accounts together, like to take like chronologically, and that is first of all, Jesus was condemned to die. So let me just read you as I put these accounts together. It says, and Pilate released to them Barabbas, the one they requested, who for rebellion, and John adds to this, by the way, he was also a robber and murder, had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Now, let's start by remembering the context. Jesus was arrested the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was betrayed by Judas. He was then condemned of blasphemy by the religious leaders of Israel. Then he's formally convicted in the morning by the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is the governing body. He's led then to Pontius Pilate still early in the morning to get the Romans to execute Christ. Pilate does not want to do that. And so he wants to excuse Jesus, not execute him. Why? Pilate probably had heard of the good things Jesus had done, and he could see that the leader's motive was envy. That's mentioned in both Matthew and Mark's accounts. So Pilate then uh, tried to get out from under making the decision about Jesus' fate, and the reason why is because... He's got to get along with the Jewish leadership who want Christ crucified. He is uh, governor of the area for Rome, the Jewish leadership. They're, they're going to have a heavy impact upon the, the opinions of the people. He's, he's had friction with them before. He does not want to have that again. And he fears angering these religious leaders, but he wants to release Jesus. So he tries several methods to release Jesus without angering Jesus' enemies. And I'll point out at least eight ways he tried it. First of all, to state Jesus' innocence and his decision to release him. for this. So the first thing he does, he comes out and he says, he's innocent, I'm just going to release him, I'm going to uh, chastise him. So he enters, the, enters that in, and then he's going to try a second way of compromising by beating Christ but not having him executed. So I'm going to chastise him and let him go. And what he means by that is to be really viciously beaten and you could suffer lifelong scars from a Roman scourging. Some even died at the hands of these Romans when they would use what they called the cat of nine tails on someone. And so Pilate doesn't want him dead. He, he, he wants to kind of compromise here, so I'll just have him beaten and then I'll I'll let him go. And then when that did not go over well with the religious leaders and they're becoming more and more angry, that's when he tries to get Herod to rule on the case with the excuse that Jesus comes from Galilee region and Herod, Herod was over that region. So he sends Jesus to Herod and Herod um, does not rule on jesus he tries to really get entertained by christ seeing if he could see a miracle or something along that line jesus will not talk to him and so he sends him back to pilate without ruling on the case then pilate tries the actual beating of christ scourging him in order to try to gain public sympathy that hopefully when the crowd sees the, the uh, jesus of nazareth all beaten up hopefully that will bring out some kind of sense of pity and they would also agree with Pilate and, and against the religious leaders. Then he could say, well, well the crowd wanted Christ released. Well, when uh, that is not seeming to work, he offers to release Jesus in honor of the Passover. That was a tradition that the Romans had, I don't know for how many years in, prior, but that they would release one of the Jewish prisoners on the, the really the greatest holiday in the Jewish calendar, that is Passover. And so Pilate had offered—what he further did to try to make this thing happen with Jesus being released is he only gave him two options. So it wasn't going to be Jesus and some other maybe popular Jewish man who had committed a lesser crime. He only gave him Jesus or this man Barabbas. And Barabbas was a rebel, he was a robber, and he was a murderer. He'd actually tried to overthrow Rome, he'd been robbing people— He was a murderer, and it seems likely that he had murdered even one of the Romans because he was trying to do some kind of a revolution. One of the Gospel writers write about that. And so he's he's trying to set up the ideal comparison, you know, Christ who's done so many good things versus this criminal. And that didn't work. Then he tries to appeal to the crowd's patriotism, and he says, Behold your king! This is the one they're calling the king of the Jews. You don't want to crucify your king. Of course, that didn't go over, and then Matthew records how he washes his hands in front of them, showing his disagreement with the crowd's choice to crucify Jesus, but nothing ultimately worked. Pilate could not satisfy Jesus' enemies with anything less than Christ's torturous death by crucifixion. And so rather than taking on the religious leaders and just saying, no, this is wrong, this is unjust, I'm going to do the right thing, I don't care what you think of me, and, and that would be at the risk of his career, by the way, because he'd had some problems with them already, and Rome would hear of this. Well, instead, he decides to cave, and now will sign the document that Jesus can be crucified. So now we've, we've considered the context. Think about the injustice in all this. Here's this man, Barabbas. And again, he's a rebel. He's tried to overthrow Rome, which again, would not make him unpopular. That wouldn't be. But he's also a robber. And who is he robbing? Well, he may be robbing just the Romans, but he also may be robbing his own people in order to try to get money or supplies. And then he's also a murderer. And so we can see this this criminal being let free and Jesus being detained. So we're now treating a criminal as an innocent man, letting him go. And we're now treating as as a criminal, the only person who has walked this planet without ever sinning. And, of course, that's Jesus of Nazareth. And so now Jesus is not merely detained, but when Pilate says to the crowd, well, what do I do then with Jesus, whom you call Christ? Again, trying to appeal to their patriotism. And the answer comes back, let him be crucified. I read a short account of one of the children murdered by the Nazis in one of their death camps. Before his arrest, this young boy was servant to a 15 year old young man named ellie wiesel now remember this guy is only 15 and his servant then has to be just a child so the nazis had discovered a cache of arms at the camp in which wiesel and his servant boy were were staying they'd been taken there as a result they moved wiesel over to auschwitz and they left the boy at the camp where he originally was, and they tortured him trying to get any information they could about this stash of, of, uh, of, of arms. And the young boy, either because he didn't know anything or just because of his loyalty to his, to his uh, kind of a master, he bravely refused to give away any information to the Nazis. And since he wouldn't crack under torture, they sentenced him to death by hanging. Now, this young fellow, and I do not have his name, was hanged along with two adults who both of them quickly died but because the child did not weigh much his death was prolonged and it was tragically torturous an adult at the camp who was forced to pass by this gruesome scene was heard to say where is god where is he truly great injustices have been done on this planet and they've been done in every generation since sin has come into the world but i want you to consider the injustice of this scene Jesus of Nazareth, the, the one person who would never sinned, the one who gave sight to the blind, the one who caused the lame to walk, the one who gave the ability of the deaf to hear, the one who caused the mute to be able to speak, the one who healed all manner of diseases, according to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, the one who called out. The religious leaders of his day for their hypocrisy, which is a refreshing and a wonderful thing to do when people who were literally taking advantage of widows and, and then making these long pretentious prayers, people who were quite honestly deceptive and greedy and wicked individuals, and yet because of their education maybe and their connections, they were looked upon as religious leaders. Jesus dealt with those type of people. And yet at the same time, he was delivering others who were humbling themselves, he was delivering them from their sins. Prostitutes were turning from their immorality. Tax collectors who were known for their greed and for their dishonesty were turning from that and giving money back to people with whom they had been dishonest. Demon-possessed people were delivered from the bondage of Satan and from the violent actions that they were undertaking under that kind of influence. Even some of the proud religious leaders were being humbled and were being saved. And the Apostle John mentions in his gospel, both in chapter 20, verse 30, and also the last verse of his book, chapter 21, verse 35, that Jesus had done many unwritten good deeds. He actually even said that the world wouldn't be able to contain the books that should be written about what Christ has done. And this is the one whom they have condemned on this day in Jerusalem to die. Now, as Jesus has been condemned, let's watch him being mocked and beaten by the soldiers. Now, these are Roman soldiers. Jesus has come under Roman authority. And so let me read you again a harmonized account of this taken from the four Gospels. It said, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. This is several hundred men. And they stripped him and put a scarlet or other gospel accounts have a purple robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him and began to salute him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him, put on his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. So I want you to see a few things here. First of all, look at the mockery of Jesus. They've stripped off his clothes. Now, I don't think he's standing there completely naked, but it'd be like standing in your underwear, being having everything ripped off your body. And I don't care if you're just in front of all men as a man or all ladies as a, as a woman. It still is a humiliating thing. Then he's given this royal robe. Now, again, some of the Gospels call it purple. Matthew calls it scarlet. And depending on the shade, they can be quite similar. So it seems that either one could be accurately uh, called that. But the robe indicated that of uh, of something that a high official would, would wear. Some of the commentators think maybe it had formerly belonged to one of the soldiers who had a high position, or even Pontius Pilate himself had had this at one time. And so the idea is that this uh, robe was put on him to humiliate him, act like, oh, yes, here's the king of the Jews. Now, they also take a crown of thorns. And if you ever see anything about the thorns in that area, they could be quite long. Um, And they would take that, they made it into a crown, probably was even painful for them to do that. And then they smashed that down on his head. And so this was used, again, as mockery, like this would be like a, a crown that a, a king or high official would wear. And it's also used to inflict pain. And, and when you think about these thorns going into the skin of the scalp, in all probability, there's a lot of bleeding that takes place. And so Jesus would be a bloody mess just from these crown of thorns being rammed into his, uh, into his head. Now, again, I don't think they're piercing the skull, but that skin is very sensitive and there's a lot of blood around there. Now, also, I want you to notice they placed a reed in Jesus' hand. Now, this was a symbol of authority as a king. It'd be like a scepter. And again, it's a ridiculous scene. He's bloodied. He's got this, he's been stripped down. And then they throw this robe over him. And they put this reed in his hand, so this is like, oh wow, you've you know you got a scepter, here's your crown, and then they even bow down, so they oh they act like in this mockery, they're bowing down to the king of the Jews, pretending their sub- submission, and then the gospel writers even mention a mocked salute. You should remember that according to Luke chapter 23 and verse 19, Barabbas had been placed in prison for inciting rebellion. And as Luke puts it and murdering someone in the process. So it's highly likely that the person he murdered was a Roman soldier. So now think of the anger these men would have felt. These are Roman soldiers. They're away from home. They're in an occupied territory in Israel and they know they're not popular there. Think of the anger these men would have felt at the death of their fellow soldier, and think of how that anger would be poured out from these men who may have even blamed Jesus. They don't have newspapers and internet and all that thing. They know this. This is the man that many are calling the king of the Jews. And they they may have, I don't know if they heard this or not, but he had actually told Pontius Pilate earlier when Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, yes, I am. So these these soldiers would have a very real angst against Christ. And the anger is coming out. They're, they've kind of taken them off to a side. This praetorium is a place where, if you remember, the Jewish leaders wouldn't even go because they don't want to defile themselves before the Sabbath, before the great Passover celebration. So it's an ideal time for the soldiers in mass to take out their frustration on the one that many are calling the king of the Jews. Uh, Further, Jesus has has again said that he's the king of the Jews. So it's very possible, at least some of these men might have thought that he might have been even behind the murder of their fellow soldier. They go from stripping him of his clothes, from the royal robe, the crown of thorns, the reed in his hand, bowing in mockery before him, mocking, salute, hail king of the Jews. Now they spit on him. When someone spits on you, it's a show of utter disdain. And that's what they're doing. They're basically saying to Jesus of Nazareth, we despise you. We hate you. And now they go to physical violence. I want you to think about them beating Christ. And that's what they do next. They smash, the Bible talks about, the crown of thorns on his head. Well, that would obviously be one of the things. But then they're hitting Jesus on the head with the reed that they gave him. So they take the reed out of his hand, out of the the fake scepter, and they start smacking him on the head with the reed. And so you can imagine this scene is not good. If you've ever seen a a group of guys, when they start going the wrong direction, sometimes they try to one-up each other. And maybe someone got the brilliant idea of yanking the reed out of Jesus' hand, obviously somebody did, and taking it and then whacking Jesus on the head. And so the humiliation is continuing. Now, at this point, they, they they run out of options or time or whatever, and now it's time to lead Christ to Calvary. So let me read the account of this. It says, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by. Him they compelled to bear his cross. So on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now, some of the other gospel accounts also indicate that Jesus did carry the cross, at least somewhat, to Calvary, whether it was at the beginning or at the end. But when the Romans bring in a guy to carry it for Christ, it seems to indicate that Jesus, by this time, had been so badly weakened by loss of blood, by the very possibly not having anything to drink for many hours now, by several beatings. He got slapped in the face in the first meeting before Annas, the former high priest. Then he's blindfolded and beaten after his condemnation, uh, probably the wee hours of the morning. He was blindfolded and beaten after his uh, condemnation there. And now the Romans, they've scourged him, which is the beating of, with the cat of nine tails, and you can die from that. And now they beat him again after they condemned him. So Christ has been brutalized repeatedly. And this, I, I'm convinced that Christ was a very strong individual. But he has gone to the place where he's been beaten so many times and been weakened so greatly that it seems very likely that they they commandeered someone to carry his cross out of necessity. And so, Jesus' cross then is carried to Calvary by Simon of Cyrene. Now, Simon and his son seems to have been known to some in the early church because it says, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And three of the gospel writers mentioned this, that Simon carried the cross of Christ to to Calvary. Now, this again shows the historicity of this event. If you have been here for a while you remember that i uh, thought i've thought much of the fact that simon carried the cross of jesus to calvary but then obviously he put the cross down and walked away allowing jesus then to be placed upon it yet christ was there to bear the punishment and wrath of almighty god against simon's sins not jesus sins simon left the cross for jesus to bear in his place and truthfully Jesus laid down on that cross, not just in Simon's place, but he laid down on that cross in your place and in my place as well. So Simon carried the cross to Calvary by compulsion. That is, the Romans had a rule, and Jesus even mentions this in the Sermon on the Mount. And many of you may be familiar where you talk about going the extra mile with someone. Well, that comes from the fact that, that the Romans had a rule that a soldier could ask anybody to carry a burden for him for up to a mile. Now, beyond a mile, you didn't have to do it. And so Jesus had said, when, when you are compelled to, to carry a, something a mile for someone, he said, go to, if you remember that, in the Sermon on the Mount. We talk about it today, going the extra mile. And that was because they were forced, whether they liked it or not, to carry burdens for the Roman army, whether it be a common soldier, whoever, is law. if they're, if you're not a, a Roman citizen, which these the vast majority of these people would not be, then you have to comply. Well, if you think about it, that's why they can just grab a guy at random, Simon Cyrene being the one, and say, you, you carry this cross, and evidently it was not a mile to Calvary, so... He had to do that. He's not given a choice. And frankly,
0: if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now back to the message.
1: That is how we bear the majority of what we would call crosses today. No, they're not a physical thing like Jesus' cross, but they are many times burdens that we bear. It might be a health issue that, again, you didn't want it. You're bearing it by compulsion. It's something that's been thrust upon you. It may be something uh, like a, uh, a very difficult family issue and maybe a, a son or daughter that you love and, and they've become hostile toward you and, and you've done everything you know to try to patch that relationship up. Maybe a marriage situation. And so you're bearing a cross and it's not something that you chose, not something that you said, hey, and volunteered for. This is something that was thrust upon you just like it was with Simon of Cyrene. But it's different with Jesus. Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross by choice, not by compulsion. You say, well, the Romans threw him down there. Well, he probably did, but the reality is this Christ could have stopped it. God the Father as well could have stopped it. And so Jesus chose not to. If you remember when he was arrested, he said, Don't you think I could call and God would give me legions of angels to stop this whole thing? It's not that Christ couldn't have done it. He chose not to. He sacrificed his life on that cross. And so let's go on with the gospel accounts. When I put them together, it says this, "...and a great multitude of the people followed him." So think about that. There's a large crowd of people now that have heard that Jesus of Nazareth is going to be executed, And so they're coming, some of them his friends, some of them his enemies, some of them maybe just not knowing what to think about him, but curious as to what's going on. There's a large crowd of people here, and women who also mourned and lamented him. These were some of his close followers. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breast which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? So Jesus has a moment to say something to some of his followers as he's walking the road toward Calvary. And it's rather interesting that many in the crowd obviously are mourning Jesus' death, but couldn't stop it. They were powerless against the Roman officers and, and soldiers there. They can't stop it. And Jesus tells them, don't weep for me. He actually says, weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, why? Because what Christ is saying is God's judgment is coming. Why weep for yourself and for your children? Well, within less than 40 years from Jesus' crucifixion, the Roman army would would have a dispute again with the nation of Israel and a major rebellion took place and the Romans came in and crushed it in 70 AD. They, they surrounded Jerusalem and came in and broke down the city. They, um, burned many of the great buildings, and Israel actually ceased to be a nation. So some of these women who may have had children, maybe young ones at that time, others maybe were going to get married and give birth within a few years of when this Christ crucifixion took place, their children would have been right in their prime years, you know, 30s and, and, well, late 30s or into 40s. And Jesus was saying, There's a time coming when you're going to wish you never had children because of what they're going to suffer. And people will be wishing for the mountains to fall on them. He says this is the beginning of that. What's interesting about that is that's a prophecy that is still to take place in the book of Revelation again. When people will be crying out to find some kind of cover and they're afraid of the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb, the Bible says, which is Jesus Christ. Because of the great sins of the world. And he also is mentioning that at this time, when this destruction is going to take place, he talks about the greenwood and the dry. What does he mean by that? Well, as best as I can understand it, he's talking about the fact that the greenwood would be, while he was there at that moment, there was some spiritual life. There's some vitality. Christ has done wonderful things. And there are many people, Jew and Gentile, who loved him and were trying to follow him. But the time was coming when, when Israel would be wiped out in the 70 AD, and it would be much drier, there'd be men, much unbelief and evil that God would be judging at that time. And so Christ is saying, it's going to be horrific. People are going to be crying out for any kind of shelter away from this horrible circumstances. People will be wishing their children had never been born. Uh, people will be, will the, the spiritual climate will be dry, not with any life in it. And so what a tragic time Christ was telling these women about. But isn't it interesting again that here's our Lord and he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about others again. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Now Jesus then finally arrives at the place of his crucifixion. Let me read that. Says, and when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with myrrh with gall to drink but when he had tasted it he would not drink and he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull which is called in the hebrew golgotha and calvary there were also two others criminals led with him to be put to death so as we put those accounts together we notice that jesus arriving at the place of his crucifixion that place is named the place of a skull I believe it received this name because of how this hill appears from a distance. It's like a human skull. In fact, there is a place outside of the ancient Damascus Gate of Jerusalem where there's a rock formation that looks very much like a human skull. And near that, it's kind of interesting that back in the mid-1800s, there were different people from different countries that began to write about the fact that they felt like this was the place of Jesus' crucifixion because it looked very much like a skull. It was also found outside of the gate of the city, the ancient city, which would have fit with the gospel details. Near that spot, they began to excavate and found two large cisterns that obviously helped maintain a sizable garden, which was dated to go back to the, at least the first century, which when, when Christ would have been on earth. In that garden... They found a first-century tomb. That tomb was empty. It's a cave hewn out of rock. And though there were two areas for bodies to lay, the tomb had only one side that had been completely carved out. There is a trough there. By the way, I, I've, I, I can tell you these details because I actually have visited the site uh, back shortly after I came out of college. And um, they never found the, the, the stone that would have rolled in that trough. But there you can see the trough where the stone would have rolled across the tomb entrance. Interestingly, um, there are also signs that Christians made a baptismal at that location. Later on, um, archaeologists tell us that the Muslims, who evidently took control of that region for a time, tried to desecrate this site. And today, the spot is known as Gordon's Calvary, G-O-R-D-O-N, Gordon's Calvary. It's named after a famous British general who believed this to be the site of Christ's crucifixion. Um, And so you can look it up if you'd like to and read on it on your own. It fits the biblical description of the accounts on several fronts. And let me just say again, it doesn't necessarily matter which site it is. There's another site more, more popular called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It really doesn't matter where. I just want you to understand that we're not just talking about myth or allegory. We're talking about real places, okay, that people can go and you can look at and you can see. And not just with myth, but where there are ties to where people can actually see evidence that this is very possibly the place of Christ's crucifixion or his burial, etc., now, again, some of the things that fit the biblical accounts, that Gordon's Calvary is outside the gates of Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12 said that Jesus was crucified outside the gate. It also fits for the name of the place, which is Calvary, which means the skull, or Golgotha is another way it was called, which means the place of a skull. Gospel writers also record that a garden was nearby, and in that garden was a tomb where Jesus was buried. And again, that had to be a wealthy man's tomb because Joseph of Arimathea were told or told the name of the guy whose tomb they used, had he was one of the Sanhedrin, one of the seventy greatest leaders in Israel in that day, he would obviously be a man of wealth. And they found not just one cistern but two, which would indicate this was quite a garden and it was obviously done by someone who had the means to do it, the wealth to do it. So that would fit. The Bible also says the tomb was hewn out of rock. That's found in Matthew chapter 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. They all mention that. And that when, when I went to that site, you'd find that would be true. It was also hewn out for only one person. Uh, there were actually two spots where it could have had a body, but the, the second one was not hewn out to full size, and that tomb is in fact empty. So whether or not that's the exact location, again, I just want to, to to let you know that there are historical things that you can see. It's not an allegory we're talking about. We're talking about literal events. You also notice that Jesus was offered, when he gets to Calvary, a mixture of sour wine, myrrh, and what's called gall to ease his pain. So now, this is actually one of the more humane gestures that was given to Christ during this horrible time. He was offered what would be like a painkiller. That's what this uh, mixture was of sour wine and the the myrrh and the gall. They would work together to give someone at least some kind of painkiller because of the horrific things that would be done at crucifixion. Now, though Jesus tasted the mixture, he then refuses to drink it. And by the way, that's in fulfillment of a prophecy in Psalm 22 that David wrote about a thousand years earlier, saying that they gave me gall for my drink. And so Jesus does taste it, but he will not drink it, and but they did. They gave it to him. That They offered it to him. Why? Jesus would go to the cross to suffer our sin debt in our place. He's not there to die painlessly. He's there to suffer for us. You say, well, I've been in such pain. Where is God in my pain? Where is God in my suffering? Let me say to this to you, that Jesus bore your grief, carried your sorrows. That means he suffered your pain. He's not just standing back, not caring. He actually endured that pain for you. He's also numbered with the criminals at his death. There's two other men going and being crucified with him. And, of course, we'll read more about them in uh, future weeks. But Jesus was, was numbered with these people. That means when you're watching the procession go to Calvary, you're not looking at a scene where, oh, this is clearly... Innocent Christ, and this is a wonderful thing. He is being treated like a common criminal, but not just a, a common uh, ordinary pickpocket or something like that, but a common criminal who was worthy of death. That's what he's being treated like. He's not being honored for his sacrifice. Now, this is true for both his enemies as well as his friends. His enemies are rejoicing over the fact of his suffering because they feel like they have won. By executing a blasphemer against God. That's how they would have looked at him. Well, he claimed to be the son of God. He was blaspheming. He's getting what he deserves. That was the mentality of many of them. And even Jesus' friends, they didn't understand that he was dying for their sins. They didn't get that. It doesn't make sense to them. If I had been there, knowing what those disciples knew, I would be utterly mystified as to why Jesus did not stop this travesty. Why doesn't he step in? Why doesn't he use his power at this point? No one is cheering on Jesus for dying for our sins. Nobody's doing that. They don't see or understand that yet. So if you're his enemy, you're you're not cheering him on. You're absolutely cheering on the Romans for executing this wicked man. If you're his friend, you're not cheering him on for doing the right thing and sacrificing himself for you. You're, you're just completely mystified and overwhelmed by not only the grief of seeing what Christ is going through, but not figuring out what could God possibly be doing that's working anything of, of good in the destruction, the brutalization, the, the torturous murder of his son. What it looks like is God is losing. If you're one of Jesus' followers, and you're standing there watching him go to the cross, it looks to you like God is losing on this day. And Jesus' identity as Messiah is now in serious question. You're asking yourself, how can he be Messiah? Messiah doesn't die. Messiah conquers. Messiah rules the world. And he brings in a worldwide peace. Let me just take you to a spot in Luke chapter 24 and verse 13 that shows you what I'm talking about. Now, this passage is talking about what is happening the day of Jesus' resurrection. It's three days after his crucifixion. It says, now, behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So he's already resurrected from the dead. Now he's coming to appear in physical form to some of his followers. Not, I don't think these are one of the 12 disciples, but they're close to Christ. They, they knew him. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So obviously these people would have recognized Jesus. He said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you are having with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now think about that. They're saying, well, we thought he was the Messiah till he was crucified, and Now that he's been crucified, they're seriously doubting that Jesus could be the Messiah. You see, they didn't understand he had come to die on the cross for their sins. Let's keep going. Indeed, they're they're still talking. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. You'll notice they were close enough that they knew some of Christ's closest followers who were women. "...then they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see." That would be Peter and John they're talking about. So these guys were pretty close to the disciples themselves. Then he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Boy, what a lesson that would have been to actually hear Jesus explain to some of his followers how he could be the Messiah, and how he needed to die for their sins. So you'll notice that it looks like Jesus is losing, like God is losing on this day. His loyal followers, even his most some of his closest ones, they don't get it. They don't get what's going on. And this actually was A fulfillment, by the way, of an ancient prophecy that Jesus would be numbered among the criminals. Listen to it. It's in Isaiah chapter 53, and it's verse 12. And there's several prophecies just in this one verse. This is written 700 years before Christ. Therefore, I will divide him, talking about the Messiah, a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's the rebels. That's the sinners. That's the criminals. And he bore the sin of many. There's his sacrificial death for us. And made intercession for the transgressors. That's where he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's fitting all of these. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. So what do we conclude as we look at Jesus' humiliation Uh, between now his condemnation and when he'll be crucified. Well, we see that Jesus suffered injustice at human hands to save us. In fact, let me state it to you this way. Jesus suffering injustice can save you from God's justice. Let me say it again. Jesus' suffering injustice can save you from God's justice. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? You and I have repeatedly sinned against God and broken his holy commands. Jesus came to this earth as God's son to rescue us from the just penalty that we would have to pay for our sins against God, which is hell forever. That's what we deserve. We deserve to be banished from God's presence in the lake of fire forever. That's what we deserve. But how does Christ save us? Romans chapter six, verse twenty-three says, "The wages, that's the payment for our sin, is death." And if you look elsewhere in the Bible, you find there's physical death and there's spiritual eternal death, and that's the the death that. Really, we die physically because of our sins, yes, but the eternal separation from God in hell, that is the ultimate payment for our sins. But the verse goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus came to earth and lived among us as a truly human person. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus was literally born in a manger in Bethlehem, or in the barn there, placed in a manger in Bethlehem. He's born as a human being Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says this but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels that's humanity for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone that means Jesus could not die as God so he took on human flesh so he could die as a man he died as a man for us So, unlike our original father Adam, who failed and sinned against God, Jesus never sinned. Thus, Christ did not, he did not sin like Adam did. Christ did what Adam failed to do. And beyond that, Jesus, as the sinless Son of God, was worthy to take upon himself then your sin debt and my sin debt, and to die and suffer God's eternal wrath against your sin in your place. Listen to God's word found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 21 and 22. It says for since by man came death that would be Adam and Eve sitting in the garden of Eden they brought death to the world, right? By man also. Now this is a different man. This is the God man, Jesus Christ. By man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So what we see is God Is, has sent his son. He's, he's lived the sinless life as a human being so he could die as a sinless sacrifice and pay for sins that he never committed, that we committed. He could actually die in our place. What we see then from this is that God is constantly working in far bigger ways than we can see. God was not losing when Jesus hung on Calvary on Skull Hill to die, God was winning. Matter of fact, the first prophecy in the Bible concerning the coming Christ was found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, this is way back in your Bible, the, very, the, the third chapter of the Bible. It's right after Adam and Eve have sinned in the Garden of Eden, and they brought sin and death into humanity, into the human race. And God says this to the devil. He says, I will put enmity or hostility, warfare between you and the woman interestingly he doesn't mention adam at this point he says between you and eve remember satan tempted eve i'm going to put hostility between you and the woman between your seed and her seed satan you're going to have your children of humanity but guess what there's going to be children that'll come from eve and and the descendants of that seed of hers kind of interesting again that the man's seed is not mentioned elsewhere it's always the man's seed But if you remember, Jesus was virgin-born, so his connection to humanity is not through a a human father, but through a human mother. And so the prophecy was that there would be a human-born, the seed of a woman, and then this is is how the prophecy ends. He, the seed of the woman, the Savior, born of a woman, shall bruise your head. He's going to crush your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what is that? It's the picture of a snake attacking a man, Satan attacking the Savior. And he's somewhat successful. He gets him, doesn't get him in a vital spot like, like his heart or his lungs or his neck. He gets him, though, in his heel. And he sinks his fangs in there. And he's bringing pain and suffering. But what happens as a result of that He says, you will get his heel. He's going to crush your head. As you're biting and trying to destroy the Savior, he's going to step on your head and deal you a death blow. And so as Jesus is hanging on Skull Hill, God was winning because the ancient prophecy was going to take place. The old serpent Satan was, yes, he was striking out to destroy God's son. He's all about the crucifixion. All he could get a hold of, however, was Christ's heel. He couldn't get Christ to sin. Remember when he tried to tempt him earlier in his life? He wasn't able to get Jesus to sin. He's not able to get to the vitals, but he is able to make him suffer. And, of course, the horrific suffering on Calvary is pictured by Satan digging his fangs into Christ's heel. But what Satan did not see, that as the serpent was hurting the Christ... The Savior was stepping on his head, dealing him a death blow. The prophecy stated that though the serpent would bruise the heel of the Savior, the Savior would crush the serpent's head. Then Jesus conquered sin and thus broke Satan's ultimate power over over those whom God saves. Now, if you're unsaved, sin still rules in your life, and Satan still has his power over your life. But if you have come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, for, or if you will today, you will find that the power of sin over and Satan over your life is broken. Does't mean that Christians still don't battle sin. We do, but that ultimate power, that ultimate control to make us do the wrong thing is broken. Christians now have been freed. And not only have has the power of sin been conquered, but death itself has been conquered. The result of sin is death. And thus, it, in in Christ's humanity, Jesus became the first, human to conquer death once and for all, for forever. He's never going to die again. That's why, by the way, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not re-sacrificing Christ. He's not being crucified again. That's a once and for all thing. He is now resurrected from the dead bodily, never to die again. And he broke down the door of death. He opened the way for eternal life. So when we just buried my, my wife's mom, just this past week, we buried my wife's mom. She had come to the spot in her life where she told my wife that she was trusting Christ and not her good works. And we obviously we can't see her heart, but we can we can believe what she told us. And based upon that, we look forward to seeing her again. Not because she was perfect, she was a great woman, but she not because she was perfect, that's not the standard. The, the standard is God's absolute perfection, and the only one that can meet that is Christ. But since Jesus died for her sins, just like he died for mine, when she puts her faith in Christ, that is sufficient for her salvation. So I'd like you to see the glory of Christ's humiliation for you. I want you to praise God for sending his son to take the the penalty of your sin in your place. Embrace God's forgiveness for your sins as purchased by Christ on the cross, if you've not yet done so. And realize that at times, God may ask his children to endure your own personal injustice, but it's a, as a way of glorifying God and reaching other souls for Christ. I don't have time to take you to that passage, but if you were taking notes... 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 to 25. I'll say it again. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 25, is a great place to go to show you that, yes, God sometimes allows his children to suffer injustice, but for God's glory, and also that souls might be reached for, for the Lord. So we, what do we see? Jesus took upon him the shame of your sin. What a blessing that God would love us that much to do that for us. Father, bless these folks. Use this message in all of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: If you would like some spiritual help like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com/slash Calkins Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening.